Gabriela Garcia's debut novel, A Woman in Salt, chronicles the lives of a Cuban matriarchal family line that spans over five generations, bringing their story to present day Miami, Florida. Garcia masterfully examines the mother-daughter relationship through Carmen and her daughter Jeanette, a recovering drug addict. Jeanette takes in a neighbor's child after witnessing the child's mother being taken away by ICE. Gabriela Garcia joins us on the Vulgar Geniuses podcast to talk about how this novel's origin story found its way through a series of short stories to become one of 2021's most celebrated works. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. So don't go away. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. My name is Denny. Welcome <laughs> back. And I am Veronica. <laughs> um, we are overjoyed uh, with our guest that we have with us today. Um, our guest is the none other than Gabriela Garcia. Uh, she is the author of her debut novel of Women and Salt from Flat Iron Books. Her fiction and poems have appeared in Best American Poetry, Tin House, Iowa Review, and elsewhere. She received a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and Steinbeck Fellowship from San Jose State University. She has a BA in Sociology from Fordham University and an MFA in Fiction from Purdue University, where she also taught creative writing. She is the daughter of immigrants from Cuba and Mexico. Gabriella was raised in Miami and currently lives on the West Coast. She is a longtime feminist and migrant justice organizer who has also worked in music and magazines. Welcome to our show, Miss Gabriella. How are you doing this wonderful evening? I'm great. Yeah, I'm so delighted to be here with you all. I'm just curious, uh, is, is it warm? Like, is it really hot where you all are right now? Hello. I so yeah I normally live in Oakland I'm in Palm Springs right now and it was 108 a little a little while ago so um a little warm a little warm <laughs> a little yeah. toasty well I hope yeah. you all get some relief from that that heat we live in Florida so we understand the heat that's our yeah normal. I mean I grew up in Florida at least it's not um humid because I think I would be having like a literal meltdown right now, but <laughs> it's not comfortable. No, no, one way it's like being roasted on an open fire, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't need that. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, need that. you don't. Get miss, you don't miss here. the afternoon showers. Come on now, <laughs> and that would be that would be great. And I think we have a drought in California, so that would be <laughs> that would be wonderful if it just rained. I it's not going to, but that would be wonderful. Well, hopefully <laughs> soon you all will get a break from from all that heat. Because mm-hmm. it's supposed to be nice weather, as far as I know. I've never experienced, but I hope it comes <laughs> to you soon. So let's get on into this book. Um, you wrote a wonderful novel, and uh, we're here to talk about it, of Women and Salt. So will you go ahead and please tell us a little bit about your book and what the inspiration was behind it? 
Yeah. So a woman in salt, um, it's all written in the voices of women and it tells the stories of, uh, basically two families whose lives kind of come together in a unexpected way. Um, and it's like five generations of a Cuban family in Cuba, as well as in Miami and also, um, a contemporary Salvadoran family. And some of that takes place in Miami. Some of it takes place in Mexico and some of it takes place in a detention center in Texas. Um, and it's sort of about all of these different women kind of forging their path within these very patriarchal structures that they're sort of born into. Um, but the relationships between them, um, and yeah, it's sort of a, a fractured narrative. Like every chapter sort of is in a different perspective and a different style, um, but it does all eventually sort of come together. Mm -hmm. Was that style intentional when you were trying to do all of that? It was, yeah. You know, I I thought a lot about novel structure. Um, and I think, and a lot of what we sort of think of as, you know, quote unquote, traditional storytelling structure, um, like, you know, the sort of hero's quest, rising action, and there's a conflict and it's resolved. You know, that's, that's all really rooted in sort of, European storytelling models like Aristotle, like, you know, um, the hero's quest. And so I sort of knew, I've always been interested in sort of very different modes of storytelling or thinking about the way stories were told even in my own family, you know, if we were like sitting around the dining table, how it kind of goes in and out of the past and the present and, you know, various different perspectives. And I sort of wanted my um, structure to feel that way. Like I wanted very deliberately to write against um, that kind of traditional story structure. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was intentional. And I was, I also really wanted to sort of challenge myself to take on very different styles and tones in every chapter. Um, yeah. So we know that you are both Cuban and Mexican um, <laughs> and with 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 it with a novel, did you did you get to use like your visits to Cuba or like if you ever visit Mexico mm -hmm. and did you incorporate this into this historical fiction drama type of sort of novel? Which is I love historical fiction, so I appreciate I appreciate the, you know a little bit of context and history every time I read something. Yeah, you know I think I I wasn't like defining it so much when when I was writing, like I was sort of like, I know I want to bring in kind of these historical glimpses, but mostly rooted in present day, you know, like I didn't want it to feel like a sort of traditional saga that shows every detail of um, different family members throughout time. So they're just like these little glimpses. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up traveling a lot to my parents' home countries. So I grew up going to Mexico a lot. I spent a lot of time in Cuba. Um, and I have some pretty tight communities in both places, in particular in Cuba. Like I, you know, I have family and friends I talk to on an almost daily basis. Mm -hmm. So having that um, access, I think, is part of why I feel most comfortable like writing, you know, sort of having those settings in Cuba and Mexico, because I did travel back a lot. And um, even times when I wasn't necessarily thinking of it as like formal research, just being in the place um, frequently like helped their writing a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Was there any other research that you needed to do other than your, you know, your own travels and writing this book? I know there's a part in the in the beginning of the novel uh, where we meet one of the characters and she's rolling cigars and there's um, a little mm-hmm. bit of information on how the cigars got their names. Uh, was that something of like stories that were told to you or is this something that you had to go and find out for your for yourself? Yeah, so the origin of that chapter in particular um, was on a trip that I took to Cuba and I went to this museum exhibit where they had these letters from Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables and, and a bunch of other books. Um, and it was a letter to women in Cuba, to workers in Cuba, um, and that stuff was on on display, and I became really fascinated and sort of interested with um, the backstory of that and the sort of interplay between um, the literary culture in Cuba in the 19th century and these like worker movements and independence movements. Um, and so I started to sort of look into that more. And as I was looking into that. Um, cigar workshops came up a bunch and I was really fascinated by that and I grew up around a lot of cigars because um my family was really into cigars my dad in particular and so I grew up around a lot of these brands like Romeo y Julieta's and um, Monte Cristo's and I never realized like the origin point um why those cigars weren't were named after books because these were actual books that were popular in the cigar workshops you know um, and so, you know, I just, I just found that like super interesting. And since a lot of my book is sort of a conversation around stories and how they're passed down and who gets to tell them, who has access to them, um, you know, it felt like a good sort of entry point into that larger, that larger conversation. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, that's such an interesting fact. And, um, right. Her mm-hmm. her husband has a yeah. has a a box of cigars and one day I was sitting at the desk and the box I was just looking at it, I'm like oh you know Romeo and Juliet and I was like I didn't know this was on a yeah. so when I read it I was like blown away I'm like ah now I know what I can reference yep. this to it's fascinating yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's definitely fascinating especially for anyone that lives in Florida and ever goes to Tampa that's mm-hmm. one area that not too long ago for me to have found out about how big it was in the, the entire like cigar uh, mm-hmm. business so this was yeah. this was a really yeah. you know walk down through florida memory lane I yeah used, I yeah used, i used to work and live in and live down in miami like i used to work mm-hmm. in miami beach so i i was around a lot of like cuban culture i have a lot of cuban friends so like I've 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 like seen all these things. Mostly, I'm I'm there for the food, but <laughs> it <laughs> is know, good. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I was I was kind of like, oh, an origin story. Everybody kind of loves an origin story. So yeah, my next question is um, about your first line, and your first line is Jeanette. Tell me, you want to live. Um, this is the first line of, of women in Saul, and one of the makings of a great story will always be a way that a story introduces itself uh, to the world. How did you give birth to that line? Um, what were you? What was the feeling that you wanted the readers to get when they read the line? And what were the feelings that you that you had when you wrote that line? 
Yeah, you know, I I was struck even when I was doing some of this research, like looking into some of these letters um, during, you know, 19th century independence movements in Cuba, like the the sort of power of a direct address, like of somebody just directly writing to another person. And I think, you know, I ended up sort of going back and adding that initial chapter, which is sort of maybe like a, a forward or something. You know, I didn't label it that, but um, you know, so much of the of the book is is around these characters not really seeing each other, not really talking to each other, right? Like that's sort of the the tragedy of it. You know, all of these stories that are never told, all of these conversations that are never had that could have changed the trajectory. Um, so I thought kind of having that in the beginning, like Carmen speaking directly to her daughter or maybe saying the things that she never was able to say um, might sort of provide a lens to then kind of see what happens. Um, and in terms of the first line, like I think I was just, I was just thinking of sort of the the anguish for Carmen in that moment, you know, and how how a lot of the book is that, you know, it's sort of these these characters wanting to survive, wanting the people they love to survive, and sort of coming up against um, all of this un, you know, all of this sort of trauma and history and whatever that they're not dealing with, you know, but there is that sort of that desire to to make it that desire to sort of um be there for the for the people they love and so that felt like like a good sort of line to start on it was very effective because you can feel like you said like they they don't necessarily like talk to each other but you can feel it like painstakingly like every page i'm like just just talk to each (laughs) other here you go solve it but no, mm-hmm. they ch- they choose different paths. They cho- they chose the path of violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just so much unresolved, you know. And I think that's sort of why it ends the way it ends, like because they're just they're not willing to go there, you know. Mm-hmm. How'd you come up with the title? So, yeah, I get a lot of questions about the title, and I think I come I come up with my titles. I think so. I also write poetry. And I think I often think of my titles in much the same way as um, when I'm thinking of of titles for poems in that it's not like directly called from the text. Like it's not, you know, a line that comes up in the text, but I knew I wanted women because it's all in the voices and perspectives of women. And I looked at sort of elements or images that came up more than once in the text. You know, I just like went through it. And salt was something that was referenced multiple times. And also something that I think can take on many different meanings, you know, for for different readers. Um, You know, there's obviously like in the literal sense, like salt of the ocean or sweat or, you know, tears or whatever. Like, I think that's referenced a few times in the text, but also all of the different things that salt can mean. Like in, in the Caribbean, it can mean danger, it can mean curse it can mean all of these different things you know um I know there's like also like biblical stuff around salts and the past and you know so 
I kind of wanted it to be able to be viewed in, in many different ways, you know? And I think that's, that's why that was the other word that I sort of landed on. Mm -hmm. We love your use of metaphors. Um, like you said, you know, you, you do poetry first mm -hmm. and throughout this novel, it's just, it's just everywhere. Um, how much of your work as a poet, um, do you find yourself initially placing into your, into your fiction? Yeah, I mean, I think um, studying poetry and reading poetry and writing it like has been enormously helpful in terms of my fiction um, in just the ways that I sometimes think about sentences, like really specifically, um, a lot of my writing, I think, is often starts from a place of image. Like that's often the, the idea that I start with is an image. So like the chapter in which a panther figures into it or, um, you know, this image of like a, a body washing ashore. Like I often sort of start with, with an image in much the same way that I approach my poetry. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, it's been, I, I recommend that always to every writer, like read a lot of poetry, study poetry, because I think, I think it really, has helped me a lot in terms of thinking about language, in terms of thinking about structure, like in every possible way. I think poetry has been really good for my fiction. I think what we what we liked collectively was like the birds and the children. I'm mm -hmm. living for the panther because I'm like, what? <laughs> like nobody saw that coming. But anyway, I'm just like, whoa, you know, it's just like you, you, you gotta you gotta think a little bit and then just like kind of like sit and ponder mm -hmm. about those things which is which is kind of nice so the the main characters of your novel are are all women each have a very specific type of relationship with their mothers um why did you decide to center the telling of your stories of these two families through them to the matriarchal lines yeah i mean i so i grew up in a very matriarchal family you know i um i grew up with a single mother and I had all sisters. She had all sisters. Um, I also grew up with my grandmother, who has all sisters. So um, I was just surrounded by women growing up, you know, and I never felt a lack in that. Like, I just, I felt really sort of supported by my kind of, um, by, my, by my world that was just centered around women, you know. Um, and so I think maybe that's part of why I've always just been very interested in stories that center women. And in particular, I'm, I'm just really fascinated by relationships between women. And I think the mother daughter dynamic can be one of the most intense. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I was very interested in kind of exploring motherhood and mother daughter relationships. But I also knew that I kind of, I wanted to sort of um, write against some of the tropes that exist around motherhood in particular around immigrant mothers as like all sacrificing all suffering mm. um these very like familiar tropes and sort of complicate that you know like some of the some of the mothers like gloria you know at one point questions whether she wants to be a mother mm. um or resents you know that she has to make certain sacrifices um carmen is so like caught up in her own kind of unprocessed trauma or misunderstandings and that affects the way that she is able to communicate with her daughter like she 
think she's helping her, but she's not, you know? Um, and so I wanted to sort of explore some of those complexities in those relationships, like mm. the ways that these women support each other and also don't and, um, and are just living very, very different realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I, I have three, I, I'm one of three sisters mm-hmm. and in, I also was surrounded by like aunts I'm Filipino, so it's like it's the mom mm-hmm. that kind of the dad kind of like decides, but the mom kind of holds it everything together. So just like the like I I know what you mean by like how you know you wanted to destroy those tropes because not not everything is kind of like the same. It's not it's not every time that you know a mother just wanted to be like oh yeah you know I have to do this I have to sacrifice everything but every story is different so it was interesting to see the changes that made the the story very very interesting and also complicated yeah yeah and i think even when we talk about like you know sacrifice and mothers sacrificing everything for their children like we rarely ask like why we have that expectation or why they are forced to make sacrifices and center themselves as mothers above everything else, you know, rather than sort of questioning the conditions that, Mm. that force that, you know? Um, And so I was, I was interested in sort of analyzing that a little bit too, you know, like um, Gloria is forced to sort of sacrifice so much of her life for her daughter. And many times she would rather not be, you know, like she talks about wanting to just go to clubbing and go dancing and whatever. Um, But she's been sort of, forced into this position by so many different forces yeah so of all the characters in your story which was the most interesting to write for you and who was the most difficult that's interesting I feel like they were all sort of difficult in their own ways and I also enjoyed occupying them (laughs) I think you know um I think when I started, I wasn't sure, like, if there was going to be a sort of main character that we kept returning to. And I think as I was writing, that became Jeanette. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in part, it's not because she was my favorite character, and in many ways, we're, we're very, very different. But I think it was just easier for me to sort of enter that character because she's the daughter of Cuban immigrants growing up in Miami, or sort of a similar age, you know? Um, so it just felt like easier to access. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it was harder when I was writing characters who were just very, very different or coming from a particular perspective, um, you know, writing my, my dailies, her cousin, who is Cuban in Cuba, um, you know, really having to sort of tap into the conversations that I've had with Cubans on the island and really thinking through, like, quieting my own like authorial perspective and really trying to sort of access those characters and and trying to be you know really careful about doing it like ethically and you know so I think those were maybe the harder ones mm-hmm. um migration stories are non-linear um it, it was it important for you to write a story about your people about being Cuban-American Yeah, you know, I think it's super interesting that often um, people have talked about my book as being like a book about 
the quote unquote immigrant experience or like migration. And it's interesting to me because I feel like maybe like at least half the characters are like not immigrants, you know, they're like the children of immigrants or they're like people in Cuba or in Mexico. Um, So, you know, so I think it's certainly like migration is a part of it, but I think it's also just about the complicated relationships that form between people um, throughout different generations, like people born in a place, people new to a place. Um, And I think oftentimes, like we talk about immigrant experiences in a very flattened way, you know, like I'm not even sure that I believe that there's such a thing as the quote unquote immigrant experience. Like I think there are many different experiences and it's often based on race. It's often based on class. It's often based on what is, you know, compelling someone to migrate, you know, politics. Like there's just so much that shapes what someone's experience is going to be in the U.S. or elsewhere. And I think you see that in these characters, like Carmen, who's has this very privileged existence in Miami, um, is living a very different reality than her neighbor, who's also an immigrant um, coming from a different place under different circumstances. And there isn't necessarily a sense of like automatic solidarity because they're immigrants. They're living very, very different experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think I, you know, similarly to talking about like tropes around motherhood and whatever, I was really interested in, you know, complicating this idea of migration and also speaking to some of those divides that exist between children of immigrants and their parents, between generations, um, between the people uh, left behind in the country and the people who've sort of grown up in the U.S. but still are still somewhat connected. You know, I was sort of interested in exploring a lot of that. Yeah, to me, I think that, that was one that I kind of like identified with because I am, I am an immigrant. My parents immigrated here, but everything is so different and it's it's not one one that like oh you know i can completely understand what you're going through it's it's not and everybody has their own problems everybody's going through it in a different way but it's also kind of comforting to know that you know we we are here and we are surviving and then things happen like you have children you have jobs you do other stuff so I think that was one thing that I've kind of like latched on when I was reading the novel because I'm like, oh, how is this like same or different with me? <laughs> mm-hmm. But and I think that's what a lot of people also kind of like, you know, um, when reading your book would like see um, that there is there is more to what meets the eye, which is every everything in the world. But it's more it's I think it's most complicated with mm-hmm. with people of people that aren't originally from here. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're always going to have really different perspectives, you know, like, um, you know, if, if your parents migrated as, as adults, they're going to have a very different perspective and experience in the U S versus if you came at a young age or were born here. Um, and there's going to be ways that, you know, that complicates your ability to like communicate with each other. And, um, same thing, you know, with, with traveling back to, you know, wherever, wherever your parents grew up, like you're just never going to have the same perspective or experience as people in in that country. Like it's just, it's just not possible. Um, 
so, you know, I was also interested in those sort of communication barriers that exist because of these very different lived experiences. You write a lot about uh, social and political um, issues within this story. Was this something that you specifically wanted to be a part of your story or did you just see that just happen to come out naturally while writing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I often say that I think every piece of writing is political, whether that's intended or not, you know, even if you're aiming to deliberately write something free of politic, like that in itself is a certain political stance, you know? Um, and, and so I think, you know, I think a lot of what I'm, what I'm just naturally interested in is going to show up in my writing, you know, and I'm, and I'm often thinking about race and class and, um, and, you know, obviously I was a, a, organizer for many years and working with women in detention centers and you know that comes up in my work um so I think you know I don't think when I'm when I sit down to write I'm necessarily thinking like I'm gonna write a political book or like I'm gonna explore these social issues but I think that's naturally like where my head is at and how I'm interested in you know what I'm interested in exploring Mm -hmm. you have your degree in sociology when did you realize like you know what, I think I want to go into the world of like writing. Yeah, so I mean, it took me like a decade before I sort of really took myself seriously as a writer. Um, Writing was always a part of my life since I was a kid. I've loved writing and I've, you know, written stories and and it's it's always been there for me. Um, But I had many different jobs and, you know, many different paths um, after after undergrad. Um, and I think, you know, it kind of took me like 10 years where, you know, I sort of reached a point where I really just found that I didn't want to do anything other than write, you know? Um, and I wasn't really plugged into any literary communities or, you know, I sort of decided to apply to MFA programs. And I sort of thought, you know, if I get into some of these programs that I want to get into and um can do this then I'll just you know take it seriously and if not I'll just keep writing and we'll see what happens and I just felt really sort of lucky that I that I got into the program that I wanted and um and was able to just take some time to sort of like solely focus on my writing but yeah it it took me a while to get there but look where you are. <laughs> look what look what that decision brought you to. And it's it's that's an awesome journey to have to really sit down and say, okay, this is what I want to do. And you see it all the way through and create such a wonderful book that, you know, hits the all the best selling list and people are talking about it. I, I know we came in contact with your writing. Uh, through one of the authors that we uh, interviewed at the beginning of the year, Mateo Escarapur. Because we have a question that we always ask, which we will ask you later. Um, but he did he did mention you, and he does his live, you know, every now and then on Fridays. And he, in the very beginning, before your book came out, that was one thing that he was always talking about, telling people that they should read. And so we were like, Aww. okay, we got to add that to our list. Because Mateo's saying is, that is that's something that really we got to pick up. Yeah, I didn't know that, but that's really, really sweet. Yeah, he's, he's a... He's a great um, person. That's that's very, very nice of him. 
Um, there is a sentence that really resonated with me, and I guess it continues on with the the political question that I asked earlier, and that is in the in the very I love the the first chapter is my favorite of all of of all of the chapters. Um, but there's a part where um Maria uh is just thinking about her life and the things that are happening all the turmoil that's that's going on and um it's the sentence where it says she hated that her own survival depended on a shadowy political future that she could hardly envision um in our past presidential election we all uh were on on the edge of our seats with bated breath (laughs) trying to figure out which way the pendulum was going to swing um this decision um that um, that she would have to come to uh, Maria uh, would dictate uh, in what direction you know like her life would go um, so what I wanted to know was would you speak about her decision to pursue this relationship with Antonio because you know there's like this sense of her wanting to hold on to her independence despite all of the things in the first couple of pages that happened to her and that is happening to her country, she's still trying to like, I want to keep myself. What mm-hmm. can you speak on that? And what, and what that turmoil in the country, how that played a part in, in her decision process? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of the book is sort of based around some of these external forces and how they shape lives, but how women are also trying to forge their space within these external forces. And I think, you know, like the the relationship between Maria Isabel and Antonio, like it's not necessarily like a, a deeply sort of romantic, you know, or like romanticized love story um, where they're just like starstruck in love with each other. It's more like, you know, I think there are like sort of limited options available to her at that time. Um, And marrying a man sort of seems, seems the most viable way that she can sort of survive. And um, yeah, like, like sort of, she, she kind of ends up finding a kind of freedom because of, because of her marriage, because she's able to have access to certain resources and, and financial security and, you know, a, a future. And again, I think sometimes resents that so much of her future is dependent on other people and all of this like stuff happening politically. Um, and then I, I kind of wanted to trace how that also is sort of true across generations, like even in very different circumstances. So like, you know, Carmen's marriage, for example, like, she sort of, you know, you sort of realize that she has found some of her like financial privilege and well-being through this relationship that, you know, through her marriage to her husband and is is sort of trapped in it in some ways because of this um, or doesn't want to leave him because of her own sort of past. And, and you see this also in Dolores and, you know, sort of not not having a lot of options available to her um, other than, you know, this, this abusive marriage. So I sort of wanted to trace, like, I think there's a, there's a sense that it's like this, like very old timey thing, like the 19th century, that this woman feels like she needs to enter this marriage in order 
to, you know, pursue the life that she wants, but like, that's also sort of true, even in the modern day story. Right. You know, so I kind of, I kind of wanted to, um, to think about those kinds of historical echoes or patterns that sort of have their origin point there, but certainly like lead to other things in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That line, I, I sat with that line for a good minute. Cause I was like, <laughs> this, this resonates even to this day where, you know, you have a lot of uh, people who want to just have this sense of autonomy over themselves and not have it connected with someone else. And knowing that eventually you might find yourself in a point where you're like having to connect with someone despite wanting to. And that, that particular part, I was like, girl, I I understand. (laughs) At least you read to her. So I was like, those moments, I was like, that's a good moment. Mm -hmm. You know, have somebody read you a book. (laughs) The options were limited. Okay. (laughs) So throughout the novel, we see this othering that happens with regards to colorism. We see that Jeanette's grandmother, when a particular item goes missing in the home as well in other conversations with other characters, uh, will we speak on how this colorism plays out in the lives of of Cubans and why you chose to address this in your novel? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, that's another place where I sort of wanted to trace um, the way history sort of has shaped, you know, modern day conversations. So like you see in the 19th century chapter, some of the like origin points of a lot of Cuba's kind of racial caste system, racial pigmentocracy, um, and projects of blanqueamiento in in the Caribbean and in Latin America, which were the sort of push to lighten the population or to encourage people to um, quote unquote better the race by marrying lighter people, and you know you still hear these phrases like to this day, you know, mm-hmm. um, in the Caribbean and certainly in Cuba but they have very specific origin points um, in very specific sort of colonial projects, which I write a little bit about. Um, So I kind of wanted to to show, you know, that one part in the 19th century and then sort of like what it leads to later on. And, And so much of that chapter is also like, Jeanette is basically going there as a Cuban American um, and she lives a very sort of privileged existence within Miami. Mm -hmm. Um, And she goes to Cuba and she's like very sort of judgmental of um, the kind of very like blatant racism and colorism that she experiences there and like her grandmother's comments and sort of thinks of herself as like that or, you know, just just having a different perspective. But then also um, in that moment when she steals the book, she chooses to stay quiet. You know, she chooses to allow uh, the grandmother to believe that her neighbor who was Black stole the book, you know, and her grandmother talks about like, you know, telling the the Comité de Defensa, which is like the the sort of neighborhood committees in Cuba and like all this stuff, which, which could literally like her neighbor's life at risk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but she is is choosing to sort of side with, with the privilege that her own whiteness or proximity to whiteness affords her, you know? So I wanted to sort of, you know, point to some of the ways that she thinks she's sort of above that, but in, in many ways is also like perpetuating the same kind of harm, you know? 
Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's, again, I think that's a conversation that's tied into everything. It's certainly tied into immigration as well. And certainly like the ability of Cuban immigrants in, in the U.S. Um, to sort of establish an ethnic enclave in Miami, like has been very tied into race and class. And I wanted to sort of portray that honestly, you know, and, and what those dynamics still are, you know, on the island and in Miami. There were moments um, in the novel where you shifted between first and third person narrative. Why did you feel like some of these stories work better hearing it from the character's point of view rather than the than the outside? Yeah, so again, I was really interested in in playing with style and playing with tone and having it fit the the story as well. So like, for example, um, there are parts of the narrative where it's in third person for Jeanette and parts where it's in first person. And one of those parts is like later on in the book when she's kind of descending into her addiction and um, into this really like abusive codependent relationship. And that's in first person. It's a lot closer to her. The prose is a lot faster. The sentences are a lot more clipped. Like I wanted to sort of capture the actual feeling of her descending into, into this um, toxic environment in the way that I wrote it, you know? And there are other parts where I felt like the distance um, helped us, you know, see those scenes in a different way. And so, yeah, I was thinking very deliberately about how to use craft elements like point of view in service of of the stories even for, within the same characters mm -hmm. um i don't know if you've ever seen doctor who but doctor who he rides around in this tardis and you know it just looks like a a, a phone book a phone booth an old style phone booth but when you walk into it it's bigger on the inside um your book is that TARDIS and so mm -hmm. we wanted to know even though it was very small we wanted to know was it your intention for uh readers when they sat down this with this book was for you for them not to rush through it like you really wanted them to sit and really feel everything that it was that you were that you were reading you know it was you know a small book but it was a, a huge impact um, well, I love that, that metaphor. That's really a cool way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted to write a sort of slim book, you know, I, I, I wanted it to, to be brief. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, when I was thinking about it, rather than have it a sort of expanded saga narrative that goes into detail in all of these characters lives, I just, I wanted it to feel more like these glimpses into each character and into a certain point in their lives, but to have each of them be sort of critical points or like really sort of, um, you know, the detail and, and the pieces of the story that I did include have it mean a lot or um, just do, do a lot, you know? So I think, I think you're right. Like it's short, but it's sort of very, yeah, there aren't like a lot of like sort of dips or rest moments. Like there's a lot happening in, in every, every chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, I, I did, 
I think I did want it to sort of feel that way, to have the feel of kind of like an epic, but also be a sort of quick read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This question comes from um, Adriana, our, our reader question. Um, the secrets in the book were generational and caused generational trauma. Is this something that you encounter in your own family's history that you wanted to kind of work through in, within your book? I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think a lot about intergenerational trauma because I do, you know, that, that has existed in my family, but I think it's also true of a lot of families, you know? So it wasn't so focused, like it's not an autobiographical novel and there are always going to be pieces of me and anything I write, but for the most part, um, you know, it's very different from my own life or my own family, like very different. But um, I think my, my sort of interest in thinking about intergenerational trauma and why it's so hard to sort of disrupt that sometimes um, certainly is some of my motivation in exploring that, you know, fictionally. Mm-hmm. What was the greatest takeaway that you want your readers to take from your from your story? You know, I I think that I wasn't necessarily thinking of like a specific message or something that I that I want everyone to sort of feel, but I think more than anything I hope that it would spark more questions more than anything, you know. Um And I think in part because I was writing into those questions myself, you know, what it means to sort of never address some of these historical truths or some of these family secrets, um, what, you know, what, what ends up happening or, or what it means when people can't be honest about themselves and the effects of that, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have come to the, to the end of our show and with our last question that we ask everyone that comes here sometimes it's easy for them to answer sometimes it's hard Um, but we want to know what are your top five books of all time all time okay (laughs) if it's it's too much um this is where you came in with um mateo's interview because well that's what i was gonna say um i feel like mateo got to like you know, talk about some current books. I feel like I totally want to do that. Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. Let us know if there's something that you're ex- like five that you're excited that you know that's coming out that you want the yeah. world to know. Yeah. Um. So, a writer who I really admire, who writes beautifully, is Monica West, and she just came out with a book called Revival Season. Um, and it's just a very beautiful writer. It's about this like, uh, Southern Black Christian family. Um, and, and some fractures that happen in that family, um, during summer when they're like visiting revivals. Um, so that's, that's a really good one. Um, I'm excited about a bunch of books that are coming out later. Like there's a book coming out next year that I'm reading now by, um, Clavis Natera. Um, she's a Afro-Dominican-American writer, um, and writing about gentrification in, in New York City, which it's it's a really cool book. So I'm really excited about that. Um, what else? Alex McEl- McElroy has a book called um, The Atmospherians that is that's about like a like a 
basically like a cult trying to rid men of misogyny <laughs> it's like a satirical <laughs> kind of it's it's really interesting um yeah so that that's a good one um is that one out that's coming out that's this out year? now oh it's already <laughs> out okay all right yeah yeah so so they're a very interesting writer um who else let me think there's so many good books out right now that I'm just like super excited about um I don't know my brain just well do you have a favorite author like one that you can just say this is my person Ooh, that's hard or one of your favorites that you can add to that list yeah I mean I feel like I'm never not learning from Toni Morrison like I could read all of her books many times and I feel like they always have something different to offer me and also just all of her writing on um you know on on literary topics and writing like I yeah just brilliance Mm -hmm. she's definitely she definitely was a whale of of knowledge and um good good reading um we -hmm. just want to say thank you for for spending this this little hour with us and uh, taking the time out to talk about your your wonderful book and we cannot absolutely cannot wait to see what you got coming up up next yep thank you so much yeah this was such a great conversation yeah this was great and anytime you want to talk about anything you are feel free to come to come by and talk to us even if it's like, I wrote a poem, I want people to know about it. Amazing. Come <laughs> All right, Gabriella, thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. All right, take care. Have a good Bye. night. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.